Uh, let me uh, read for us now 2 Kings chapter 2. Uh, last week, uh, Ricardo preached to us about the mantle being passed from Elijah to Elisha. Elisha being granted a double, uh, a double measure of that spirit, which was granted to Elijah to continue the prophetic ministry uh, that had begun through uh, the prophet. We pick up now after Elijah's uh, departure with verse uh, 16. Uh, 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 16. And they said to him, Behold, now there are with your servants fifty strong men. Please let them go and seek your master. It may be that the Spirit of the Lord has caught him up and cast him upon some mountain or into some valley. He said, You shall not send. But when they urged him till he was ashamed, he said, Send. They sent therefore fifty men, and for three days they sought him, but did not find him. And they came back to him while he was staying at Jericho. And he said to them, Did I not say to you, Do not go? And now the men of the city said to Elisha, Behold, the situation of this city is pleasant, as my Lord sees. But the water is bad, and the land is unfruitful. He said, Bring me a new bowl and put salt in it. So they brought it to him. And then he went, into the, or went to the spring of water and threw salt in it and said, Thus says the Lord, I have healed this water. From now on, neither death nor miscarriage shall come from it. So the water has been healed to this day, according to the word that Elisha spoke. He went up from there to Bethel, while he was going up on the way, some small boys came out of the city and jeered at him, saying, Go up, you bald head! Go up, you bald head! And he turned around, and when he saw them, he cursed them in the name of the Lord. And two she-bears came out of the woods and tore fifty-two of the boys, or forty-two of the boys. Uh, from there he went on to Mount Carmel. And from there he returned to Samaria. In the sense, it's reading in God's word. Let's again seek the Lord's face in prayer. Lord, we thank you for your word. It is truth. It's life-giving. It's the word that we most need to hear. We ask, Lord, that you now bless it for our soul's good this evening. Make us to pay attention carefully to all that it says. Make us quick to apply your word to our lives. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Uh, amen. Uh, in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 2 and verses 15 and 16, Paul uh, describes the effects of his ministry in this way. He says, For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. Uh, to one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance uh, from life to life. That is, wherever the ministry of the Word goes, it is to some a ministry which confirms death and judgment. It is to others a ministry which brings life and salvation. Uh, this double effect of the ministry is the same thing that uh, the Lord Jesus Himself spoke of in John chapter 3 and verse 17. 
Uh, therefore, uh, or John's uh, reference to Jesus' ministry, it says in John 3 and 17, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Christ comes, some believe unto life. Others do not believe and are condemned in their sin. Well, Elisha's ministry is truly a ministry of the Word of God. He is a prophet of God, ministering in God's name. That was certainly the case in Elijah's ministry, as we've seen uh, these past several months together. But as we saw last week, Elijah's mantle has now been placed upon Elisha. Elisha, similarly, is going to minister in the name of God. Now, we're not going to spend much time in verses 16 through 18, but those verses simply confirm the fact that Elijah has now left the scene. He is no more to be found. He has ascended truly into the presence of God, God's confirmation upon his prophetic ministry. And Elisha now stands in his place. And at the very outset of Elisha's ministry, there are going to be two separate miracles performed in two different well-known cities. One, the city of Jericho, and the other, the city of Bethel. And in these two miracles, we are going to see these two sides of the ministry of God's Word. In Jericho, it's going to be a ministry of blessing and of salvation. In Bethel, on the other hand, is going to be a ministry of judgment and condemnation. So it's really these two things that we want to look at tonight. Two different miracles with two different results. Uh, The first, then, is going to be Elisha's ministry of, to use Paul's language, of life unto life. He is to the people of Jericho a fragrance of life unto life. Well, let's first of all look at this miracle in verses 19 through 22. Uh, The city of Jericho was a beautiful city. Josephus later described it as almost a fairyland, a very garden and a paradise of eastern beauty. And yet, despite Jericho's great beauty, they had a very significant problem. And that is that their water was bad. The fountains upon which they depended for life and refreshment, instead of bringing that, brought death and bereavement. Uh, We see that in verse uh, 19. Uh, The water is bad and the, the land is unfruitful. That is that there was something lethal in this water supply that caused of fatalities, both for livestock and probably also uh, for humans. We see in our own day uh, the danger when a water supply is bad. The city of Jackson, Mississippi, recently gone through a, a severe water crisis, and it affected everything, and how frequently as well. And other lands, uh, one of the most uh, kind and compassionate things that uh, can be done for a community is to provide good water for that uh, for that community. 
Well, that's what was going on here in Jericho. Well, why was uh, this water bad? Well, the city itself was under a curse. Uh, in Joshua chapter 6, the famous event when uh, the, uh, uh, Joshua and the men uh, marched around uh, the city of Jericho and those walls came a-tumbling down, after that incident... Indeed, the city of Jericho was placed under a curse. Cursed before the Lord, we were told, is the man who tries to rebuild this city of Jericho. Well, in 1 Kings 16, verse 34, we read of somebody who sought to do the very thing which the Lord uh, forbid. It was Heel of uh, Bethel who rebuilt the city and who rebuilt it at the death of his own sons for that act. And so the city now had become populated over several decades, but it was a city that was still under a curse. So a beautiful, pleasant city on the outside, but one which inwardly had a deadly problem. And it is this problem that is... Uh, taken care of by this miracle. Elisha is called upon. They call upon the prophet of God. And this prophet of God is now going to bring life and vitality where before there was death and miscarriage. We ask at this point, well, what was it that this city had done to deserve God's grace? And the answer is nothing. And that's the point of God's grace, is it not? It is entirely undeserved and unprovoked. It comes to this cursed city out of the sovereign good pleasure of God. And this miracle in which the water is going to be made well is ultimately a pointer to us, to God's grace, where before there is a curse. Uh, water is frequently a picture in the scriptures of God's grace. Uh, there were bitter waters in Marah, Mara, early in Israel's wilderness, uh, wilderness wanderings. In Exodus chapter 15, the Israelites couldn't drink the water, but the Lord showed Moses a tree, and when it was cast into the water, the waters became sweet. Or in Ezekiel 47, uh, the idea of a river of water a transformation of the Dead Sea is a, is a picture of the greatness and the fullness of the grace of God. And so even under, uh, in the New Testament, in the book of John, uh, when the Lord Jesus is seeking to show the abundance of His, of His mercy, the Lord Jesus cries out, Well, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And so indeed, in the Scriptures throughout, this idea of the healing of the waters, of waters being made fresh and pure and living, is a picture of the grace of God. And the waters of Jericho are healed to show that our God is a God of mercy and of grace. And if He can heal the waters of this city, He can heal any sinner who is under the curse and the death that sin brings. That's the good news 
of this miracle in uh, Jericho's day. And in particular, I just want to point out a few things about this this gracious miracle. Uh, Notice, first of all, that the healing here is accomplished by unlikely means. Elisha says, bring me a new bowl and put salt in it. And then he goes to the spring of water and he throws salt in that water. And we say, How did that salt cure this fountain of water? And the point is that there was nothing mechanical that happened here. Uh, Nothing uh, uh, automatic, but it was simply this, that this means was used. Commentators speculate why this means. Why a new bowl? Why salt? We're not going to get into all of those details because, quite frankly, we don't know. (laughs) We don't know why other than that this was the simple means that the Lord chose to exercise His great power. And is it not the case today? How does the Lord bring sinners from death to life? The simple means, the preaching of the cross. Our believers built up and confirmed the outward sign of water, the outward sign of a cup or of wine and of bread, as we're going to partake of tonight. The Lord blesses often very ordinary and unlikely means in doing his saving work. The second thing that we see about this healing is that the healing occurs at the very source of the problem. He goes to the very source of this this water, the spring of water, and it is there that it is healed. Our Lord is able as well to heal the very depths of our being, our hearts, our bad and corrupt natures. Is he able to make alive? The third thing that we see here is that all glory goes to God for the healing that occurs. Elisha doesn't take credit for what happened, but rather he says, thus says the Lord, I have healed this water. Whose work is it? It is God's work, and so it is in the saving of any sinner. Who has done it? It is God and God's work alone, and to him belongs all glory. Then the next thing that we see here is the change that then is accomplished is a change that is both complete and permanent. We are told that no longer death nor miscarriage comes from it. It's not that those things have simply been decreased or the situation has become marginally better, but rather the situation is healed entirely and healed not just for a time only, But the writer says it's healed to this day, according to the word that Elisha spoke. And when the Lord works, he works completely and permanently in the heart of sinners. Philippians 1.6, confident of this, that the one who began that good work in you will bring it to completion, even until the day of Jesus Christ. So here we have, at the outset of Elisha's ministry, a beautiful, glorious picture of the grace of God. And let me just say a couple of words here. First of all, I want to speak to any in this room that are currently not saved, who are unbelievers. Can this God save a person like you? You might say, and I hope that in one sense that you do say this because it means that you've come to a sense of who you really are. You might say, but I am 
so foul. I am so corrupt. My heart is so bad. Preacher, you don't understand the things that I've done. And I want to say to you, the God who brought healing to the bad waters of Jericho is the one who can bring eternal healing to your heart as well. This miracle is given to us as a picture of the salvation that this God of mercy brings to dead and lost sinners. God can make you clean. Cry out to the God who brought healing to the waters of Jericho. Lord, as you healed those waters, so heal my foul and corrupt heart. And might it issue forth in things that speak of life and vitality. The God of Jericho is able to do that. But even as I say a word to those who need this healing, let me say a word also to those who have already experienced this healing and who have maybe experienced this healing long ago. You've been a believer for a long time. Can I just say to you that you need to remember that the God who healed these waters of Jericho is the one who saved you. And the only reason that you are in this room with the praises of Jesus upon your lips is because this God has made what is foul clean. He has rescued you by His almighty power and grace. And friends, one of the keys to the Christian life is to never, ever, ever forget that that is what has happened to you. To remember daily, amazing grace, how sweet the sound, that saved a wretch like me. Once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. That's why the Lord's given us the table. And he says to us, come to this table again and again and again. Why is that? It's because we are never in this life beyond that place where we are sinners saved by the free grace of God by His shed blood and broken body for our sake. And so one of the keys, dear friends, to the Christian life and to living a life of gratitude and humility like we're called to live is to remember day by day by day the fact that I am a sinner saved by the grace of God alone. The God who healed the waters of Jericho is the God who has come and healed my heart also. Elisha begins his ministry by the Lord showing us that it is a ministry truly, a fragrance of life unto life. He is a God of grace and salvation. Let's move on, though, because there's a second lesson to learn here, and that is that also the ministry that Elisha brings in the name of God is also a ministry of death unto death. He brings for some what is called the what, what the apostle Paul calls the fragrance of death unto death. This is what we see in verses twenty three through twenty five. Um, many people have found this story uh, unsettling. Um, many have found it uh, rather ludicrous. One writer expressed an opinion 
Uh, There's no serious point in this incident. It does not reflect much to the credit of the prophet. Perhaps it is, at the best, the memory of some catastrophe which happened to coincide with Elisha's visit to Bethel. Uh, Many people think uh, that this is just an example of a prophet gone mad, somebody who's kind of flown off the handle. This is a little embarrassing. Can't Elisha put up with a little bit of teasing? What's going on here? And this incident of Elisha and these ewes and these bears that are called down in judgment. Well, I think that there are, uh, that this is every bit as much a part of God's word as any other section. It is to be heard for our prophet. And it does teach us some very important lessons about sin and about the judgment uh, to come. Well, let's just pick up the story a little bit and see what, it, what there is here to, to learn. Elijah or Elisha has just performed a miracle of God's grace in Jericho. Uh, he heads out of that city on the way to Mount Carmel, and on his way he passes by the city of, of Bethel. Now perhaps you'd think that the people of Bethel would have heard of the great things that had just been done in Jericho, and would have been crying out to this prophet to come and to, and to meet us, come into our city as well, and perform a similar ministry. But instead, Elisha is met with the very opposite response. Outside of the city, he is met by some youths who come and mock him. There's a number of things to point out about what is happening here. It might seem at first that what's going on here is a little bit of innocent fun. The, The old prophet getting teased by a few little children. But instead, if we take a serious look, we see that something much more serious is happening uh, in this passage. Uh, These uh, children that come, uh, we ought not to think of like toddler age children necessarily, but rather the word is uh, the same word that is used for Joseph at age 17 or even Solomon at about age 20. Uh, Some commentators think that these youths could have been as young as 10 or 12, or all the way up even to uh, young men. Okay, so these are small boys, we're told in the passage, but again, these are, these are children of, of some kind, youths. And notice how many there are as well. It's not just a few, but rather we are told 42 of them are mauled, mauled uh, later in verse 24, uh, but it's 42 of the boys meaning that there were likely many more than 42 uh, who were there. So it was a kind of small mob that greeted Elijah. Or Elisha, excuse me. I wonder how many times we're going to do that in the next few weeks. Uh, Elisha. And they had uh, rather uh, evil intentions, it seems, as well. They came, literally came out of the city. They came from the city to meet him on the way. So it's not that Elisha was passing through Main Street, where some boys were hanging out outside the local shops, but rather it was a kind of mob of youths that left the city walls, that went out to where Elisha was passing by in order intentionally to mock and to heap scorn upon this prophet of God. And then what they said to him were these words, Go up, you bald head. Go up, you bald head. 
Well, what about this jeering? Well, it has been pointed out by others that in the 8th century B.C., people generally traveled with with hats. Uh, They would have not likely noticed Elisha's baldness. Uh, And we don't know necessarily if the baldness was kind of a mark of the prophet or if it was just that Elisha didn't have much hair growing up there. We don't know exactly what it was. We don't need to even necessarily speculate much about how appropriate this bit of mockery uh, was. But the point is clear. They were attempting to humiliate the prophet. And in this language, kind of go up. Uh, Some have speculated, well, it may be reference to what just happened to Elijah. And so they're saying, well, maybe perhaps, well, if you're any kind of prophet of God, why don't you go up as well? Or it may be just a way of saying, hey, prophet, make yourself scarce around here. Again, we don't know. But what we do know is they laughed and they joked and they heaped scorn upon this prophet of God. Rather than, uh, uh, rather than being recipients of the grace and the mercy which was just brought to Jericho, they instead make fun of his ministry. They think of him as some kind of quack. They heap contempt upon him and upon his God as well. Ralph Davis, I think, summarizes what is going on the best. He says it this way, Responsible young lads were expressing abuse, contempt, and hostility toward the Lord's representative, and they knew that they were doing so. And this was no minor sin prophet was a messenger sent by God. By mocking Elisha, they were mocking God. Uh, They were saying to God, we have no need of this, your provision for us in this prophet. They thought it no big deal what they were doing. They thought it a matter of laughter and derision that God would send to them this prophet. Well, after being mocked in this way, Elisha, verse 24, we are told, turns around and when he sees them, he curses them in the name of the Lord. What's going on here? Well, a kind of cursing like this is something that the psalmist himself would do in the imprecatory psalms. Uh, It's very similar to what Paul himself does in 1 Corinthians 16, verse 22, when he says, if anyone does not love the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be accursed. So this is not just simply Elisha's emotional response to a kind of personal offense, but rather he is speaking a word of curse to those who had mocked God himself. And so, Whatever it is that you make of this imprecation, notice as well that it apparently was in obedience to God's will because God answers this request and does it immediately by the sending of two bears who go and maul 42 of these ewes. So how can we understand this passage rightly? Well, I think to understand it, we need to focus not so much on what it tells us about Elisha, but instead to focus on what this tells us about our God. Elisha is the instrument that God uses to announce God's curse 
upon these blasphemers. It is God who sends these two female bears in an act of God's judgment. And what it tells us about God is this. It tells us that His holiness is a whole lot greater and that our sin is a whole lot more serious than most of us are used to thinking. And it's not the only incident like this that occurs in Scripture. Think of Uzzah and the ark, touching the ark. He's uh, uh, cast down, dead. Think of, in the New Testament, Ananias and Sapphira, days of God's extraordinary mercy and grace and thousands being saved. Ananias and Sapphira come and they lie to the Holy Spirit. And they're dead. What is it a reminder of? In each of these times of, of grace and mercy, it's a reminder that God is also a God of holiness. And He's a God who is not to be mocked. That He is a God who does bring judgment. And I want to point out just a few things here by way of application of this. And the first is a word, especially to young people but to all who would make a mockery of God and of the things of religion. I think it is sometimes, especially one of the features of youth, that we are quick to use sarcasm and put-downs to make a mockery of things, to make fun of things as a kind of sport. We had to sometimes puff ourselves up to look a little cool, putting others down. Dear friends, this is, this is an indication that this is a very serious thing to do. We ought not to make jest of other people who are created in God's image. And we especially ought not, not to mock God in church and preaching, and the pursuit of holiness, and all of the things that are associated with God Himself. We ought not to make fun of these things. And it might take different forms. Sometimes the, the way that we do it, of, of, of uh, again, just maybe saying to a, a friend, well, aren't you just trying to be so holy? Words like that. Well, dear friends, holiness is something that is serious in the sight of God. We ought not to mock these things at all. Remember what the third commandment says. The third commandment says that we shall not take the name of the Lord our God in vain. What is that commandment really saying? It is saying we ought not to make vain uses of anything associated with God. Our catechism puts it this way that we are to use in a holy and reverent way all of God's names, titles, attributes, ordinances, word, and works. Everything associated with God, we ought to treat in a holy manner. And this is just a reminder of that. Here were young people doing what young people often do, making a mockery of the things of religion. And God says it is Serious, deadly serious. 
And might we in our youth be people that remember our Creator rather than those who mock our Creator. So that's one lesson that's to be learned here. A second lesson is this. A second lesson uh, is this, that we need uh, as parents to remember that so often the sins of parents and grandparents are easily replicated in our children. You know much about Bethel. Well, what we do know, that even though this was a place that originally means the house of God, it had been turned into a very wicked place. It was one of the places where those golden calves were set up by Jeroboam as a kind of alternate place of worship. So instead of going to Jerusalem to worship in the temple, you could go to Bethel, and there was another way to worship. They had mocked God in His worship and had done so now for centuries. It was a place of false worship and false idolatry. And so, what do we see now in the youth of this city? We see that they are mockers of the true prophet of God. How often the sins of parents and of grandparents can be replicated in the children or in the youth. Not always, understand you, God in His marvelous grace sometimes intervenes and brings in His mercy and grace a real child of God out of wicked, uh, out of wicked ancestry. But it's all of God's grace when that happens. And let us be careful to realize that so often this is the case. And so it, it's, it's a challenge to us who are parents and grandparents to, to seek to model the things of God for our children, to teach them the things of truth. And, and you might say, oh, I've already fouled it all up. I see so much of my sin in my children and in my grandchildren. What can I say to you? Can you also be a model for them now of what God's grace looks like and one who has been changed? Of what repentance looks like? Of what a changed life looks like? There is still time, even now, to set before them a godly example. We pray earnestly that that might be replicated in their lives. It teaches us something about the sins of parents and of youth. But the last thing that this passage teaches us, the last thing that I want to come to before we come to the table this evening, is that this passage truly does teach us as well what it is that every sin deserves. There's a sense in which we look at this and we say, it doesn't seem all that serious what they did. And the reason that we say that is because we find similar kinds of sin in our own hearts and in our society all the time. How frequently, how frequently the things of God are ignored. The Word of God is ignored. The things of God are mocked. And it reminds us that what every sin deserves, as our catechism says, is the wrath and the curse of God. And so this incident in Bethel does really kind of point us back to Jericho, doesn't it? And it says, oh, what we deserve is the, murder, is the curse of God. His wrath against our sin. 
But, oh, Lord, our God, would you be one who has mercy and grace to me? And, you know, the Lord Jesus, one of the reasons that he came was to save those who were mockers. I'm reminded of what Christ suffered while on the cross. Was it not mockery and derision? People ridiculing, not just a prophet of God, but the Son of God himself. He saved others. Can he save himself? What did our Lord Jesus pray while on the cross? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Oh, what extraordinary words of grace those are for mockers. Our Lord Jesus says about those who are mocking, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He suffered on Calvary's tree. The wrath and curse that was even due for mockers. And might we come to him in all of the weakness, frailty, and sinfulness that we carry. Say to him, save one such as me as well. O Lord, forgive me for that which I have done. And might the Lord be pleased to save us, to cause us to walk in continual thanksgiving for his saving work. Let's pray together. Lord, our God in heaven, we thank you for all that this incident shows us. At the beginning of Elisha's ministry, a ministry that is a fragrance of life unto life and a fragrance of death unto death. Lord, our God, we pray that you would make us to heed these things as the truth of the word of God. O Lord, save us from our sin. Make us to see how heinous it is. Make us to flee to the one place of salvation, which is only and ever the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for all that you have done for us, especially on Calvary's tree, as you bore even the sin of mockers and scoffers. And you saved them. Lord, would you, by your mercy, redeem us and cause us to walk in thanksgiving before you. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name.